0: My name's Martin, and yes, I'm taking over again. I'm really excited to introduce this interview between Richard and Nana, who is the co-host of the Pengaflöder podcast. I hope I'm saying that right. It's a Swedish podcast, but luckily for Richard, and I imagine most of the people listening to this podcast, it's in English. The reason I'm in particularly excited about this one, aside from the fact that I get to introduce it, of course, is because what Richard speaks about in this interview is details around the property investments and its business structure that we haven't yet heard a lot about on the podcast. And it's really interesting to listen to. So, without further ado, let's get into it.
1: Today we have Richard Brown. How are you, Richard?
2: Hey, no, no, hi. I'm, I'm good. I'm good, thank you. Good to see you. Thanks for inviting me on, eventually.
1: <laughs> yeah, this has been a long time coming. But I want to save the the best for the last.
2: Oh, is <laughs> that right. Oh, well, okay. I'll, I'll look to see who's coming on after me then. <laughs> <laughs> no, but
1: I think you're... I think you have a very interesting story and in how you invest you are the exact that type of uh, person and investment type of strategies that me and Emily want to do so I thought uh, this episode would be very very interesting and informational yeah so tell me about your background.
2: From a property point of view, um, well, I mean, okay, let me just tell you about me. Uh, so now I'm uh, getting on a bit. I'm 54. Um, so I've had a life and a career <laughs> already. Um, I'm British. I'm married to a Brazilian. We've got three adult grown-up girls. Um, uh, they're, they're between 21 and 26 years old. So that's the sort of family. If you like, Uh, we we have this sort of multicultural life because obviously my wife being Brazilian, so that's really that's really great um, to have that. And uh, and by the way, that plays a part in our lifestyle, as I'm sure you you are aware. Um, So, but you know, I, I I followed a traditional route in it, I guess, from a professional point of view. I got educated, you know, did what my dad told me to do as a good boy in that sense, even though I resisted a little bit. I got educated and then went into Corporate land, as I call it, I had a career mainly financial services. So I worked directly for banks, and then I also worked for manufacturers, delivering manufacturing. Uh, sorry, not manufacturing, financial services uh, on behalf of those manufacturers. So uh, business-to-business finance really was my sort of uh, first phase career, and then I, I've always wanted to run my own business, and so I stepped out at one point and. Um, Became a uh, you know I, I ran a few small businesses for about ten years or so, um, did okay but didn't do stellar. I did okay, um, sold bought and sold some businesses, ran some businesses, taught myself a few different industry sectors. So that I guess that would be my second phase career, and then um, then effectively kind of went back into employment with uh, this crazy guy called John Chitty who uh, hats off to him he gave me he gave me a job and went back into corporate land and was working for some blue chips you know I big IT companies and, and big sort of industrials again on the financial services side but I've also done a bit of consulting too so that would be the third uh, element to my professional working career but basically um, I I know you've cued me. and I know I probably shouldn't say this, but you've you've asked me a question about what would be one of my favourite movies. Probably a bit of a fun question later. Um, so without a so spoiler alert, I'm going to answer one of the fun questions that you possibly might ask me at the end now. And one of one of my favourite movies is The Matrix, and um, it's a bit dated now, uh, but you know I love the concept of the Matrix. You know. And what I like about The Matrix, it talks about basically a parallel universe and that we're trapped in this almost a game. Uh, That's the concept of the film. And I think to some extent, working for other people is like that. So that's why I brought it in at this point. So my point being that I was kind of restless in the corporate environment. I I didn't feel that I really fitted in. You know, if you imagine you going with, with something, it's nice and smooth, but if you go against that grain, um, it, it's rough, it's jagged, it gets stuck. And I felt like that. So, you know, so I made the second leap to uh, leave full-time sort of corporate land employment um, about two, eight years ago, something like that. And I've been kind of doing my own thing, predominantly property-based and also some associated services around property for the last eight years or so and started, you know, in property in earnest about 11 years ago. So um, property's been my thing now for about a decade or so. And uh, yeah, we can get into the detail of that. But that's kind of the context. That's how I got here. I started later, I guess, because I told you I'm, I'm, I'm in my mid-50s. So it was in my mid-40s, early mid-40s, when I kind of realized that property, well, what is this thing? I could do something different with my life. I could escape the matrix to, uh, to keep my analogy going. And I didn't really, I, I was asleep. I, didn't, I wasn't awake to it. And then I eventually did wake up uh, and it was four years after waking up uh, before I actually managed to escape and and, uh, find my way out of the matrix. So I don't know if that's how you wanted me to answer that question, but that's uh, that's a little bit of my sort of background personally and professionally and how I got here generally.
1: No, that's perfect. That's perfect. Yeah, so that sounds uh, quite fun. (laughs) So what about your portfolio then? Because I know you have a big portfolio from different countries as well.
2: Yeah, so, um, so I guess the, there's four elements to my business effectively. So I've got the existing rental portfolio. I've got a couple of S, uh, service accommodation units. And I've got some developments which I'm predominantly converting to retain. Although some of those I will move on. And then I've got sort of investor services type of business. So there's four elements to what I do. So in terms of the portfolio, which is effectively all but those services, um, there's 75 uh, rental units and um, across four countries. Um, they, they, they are, to be fair, concentrated in the U.K, and the secondary market, or the second largest market is the USA. Um, but I've got a few interests in Brazil, um, which you might expect. Given um, my my wife's nationality, and also uh, in Portugal, just a, a very small exposure in Portugal, um, and uh, as it's Portuguese speaking, the Brazilian you know speaker in my family helps a lot with that too. So um, the what was interesting, I suppose, is that um, maybe we'll get onto this a little bit, but I probably got to these are round figures. I probably got to around about twenty five rental units, approximately two or three years ago, and now it's seventy five. So it took about: wow. Yeah, it took about seven or eight years to get to about 25, and it's taken another two, or three years to get to 75. So kind of you can see the, the, the kind of it was more of a, like a linear growth and then a sort of step change um, in the last couple of years. So that, that's kind of just a brief overview, if you like, of the number of units and, and where right. they are.
1: May I ask, what happened? <laughs> what well, to, to that,
2: yeah. Um, yeah, that's a really good question, to be honest, because I suppose what I was doing was what I call cookie-cutter approach for the first seven or eight years. So I was follow, following predominantly a BRR type of strategy by refurbish refinance. So I love to add value to property. And so um, I was kind of just doing it. I was doing, two, you know, between two and, on average, about three a year, I suppose, um, of these types of projects. Um, you know a couple running at the same time, staggered across a year, and I was steadily growing to about as I mentioned approximately twenty five units, um, kind of one project at a time, um, although doing three of them on average and What changed was really uh, two or three years ago, I recognized that actually I could do multiple unit you know conversions predominantly, so I was looking at you you know four units, six units, twelve units. You know conversions predominantly some a little bit of new build not a lot of new build mostly conversion and so it, it just that's what created that that growth you know so yeah you know, for example uh, an 11 unit commercial conversion in stoke-on-trent It's 11 units in one go and yes it's more complex but at the end of the day it's still one project you know so I could do that project, it would take longer, it's more complex, there's issues, et cetera, that you need to deal with, which are different to your vanilla buy, refurbish, refinance, you know, on a single family home. Yeah. But, you know, it was that that's what allowed me to scale. And of course, it, it takes you into another level uh, once you get to looking at projects like that. You know, it's another level of complexity and planning and financing. Um, you know, yeah. managing the project, you know, is different. The team you have um, is also different. So there were some growing pains (laughs) between going this flat line to this sort of steep line. Uh, To be honest with you, there were some growing pains. But you know, just sort of coming through, coming through that now. Now got a bit more sort of control on things, a bit more order. My settled, my team is more settled. So, um, but that's what made the difference. That's you know, that's how I went from three a year to whatever. 12, 15, whatever a year it's been since, <laughs> since then, maybe 20 a year actually, near, closer to that. Yeah, somewhere between. So on average, about 15 a year in the last three years.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, different. <laughs>
2: yeah. And I, I, I also spoke because um, a lot of people who develop, like, so let's call develop you know, conversions as well as ground up developments. Uh, BRR is development mm-hmm. actually, but it's small, you know, it's, it's low level development. It's just a refurbishment or maybe an, a bit of an extension work or something. But so when you talk about development, so like a commercial to residential conversion, that kind of development or um, a ground up development, I'm predominantly converting or building to retain in my portfolio as well. So that's my preferred model, my preferred exit route. And that's why I, my portfolio is also growing. And so that that also allows me to um, look at opportunities, look at projects in a slightly different way to a traditional developer. So a traditional developer is building to sell, um, and you know obviously they need they they need to do find the site, manage the site, you know sell the site, and maximise their profit, and then go and find another one, and do it all over again. Yeah. Whereas as a if I use the phrase build to rent but what I'm not I'm not doing the full build to rent model with extra services for example but I am building or converting to retain in my portfolio I can afford to take a slightly different view on the project phase profitability uh knowing full well that I will retain the asset and I'll have an income stream theoretically for life so um yeah. so therefore I can I can sort of Maybe a site is more appealing to me than it is to a traditional developer, because you know if you just if you need to make your twenty thirty forty percent profit whatever as a developer might look for, um, I I don't need to make that on the actual conversion side. I'd like to, but you know I don't yeah. need I don't need to. So yeah, that that um, that that sort of enabled me to scale my rental portfolio on a kind of a self-developed type of basis.
1: Yeah, so. The, that leads me into into the to my third question. Why do you invest in several countries?
2: Uh, for fun. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, the serious answer is diversification. Um, so you know I've got investments in four currencies: so euro, pound, dollar, and uh, what's the Brazilian real. Um, yeah. So I'm hedging against different, you know, economies, uh, currencies, um, and mar- you know, property markets. So it gives me some diversification. So theoretically, if the UK is down, maybe the US is up. Maybe they follow each other fairly similarly. To be fair, but you know, Portugal you know, is, is more in the eurozone, and uh, obviously Brazil is you know in a different sector. So um, I think because also we have an international family with an international lifestyle it's it's also useful for us to have earnings in different currencies um as well yeah so diversification of risk diversification of economic factors diversification of currency that's the logic behind it and and then you know obviously i get to travel and you know visit people in all these places and uh you know it's 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 this is a great opportunity it's kind of fun too um to be able to do that so there was a bit of seriousness in me saying it fun but um so that's that's the logical answer as to why I invest in different countries. I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend doing that for everyone, by the way. Mm-hmm. So, um, why? Well, it's complex, you know, basically. So obviously, I know, for example, you, you're you in one country looking, looking to predominantly invest in another one. So you're located in one and investing in another one. And that already brings some complexity, right, for you. You've got to learn the differences, yes. you know. Between those two countries, so if you multiply that by four, um, <laughs> a, a, you know it, it's more complex, and you know there's more things to learn. In fact, actually, the USA is not really one country; it's fifty. So I'm not investing yeah. in fifty states, <laughs> but um, you know, so for example, I have investments in three states in the US, and it's almost like it's not quite. It's not quite like investing in three separate countries, but there are differences. You know, different tax laws, for example. Uh, different landlord laws in in different states in the U.S. So it's complex. So that's why I wouldn't necessarily recommend it in exactly the same way that I have done it. Uh, I might do a bit of consolidation uh, going forward, uh, and I'm certainly more concentrated in two primary markets uh, now than I was. So you know, you learn things as you gr- as you uh, grow and develop. And I think some you know the init- the start of the U.S. for example was more opportunistic for me about five years ago. Uh, I had had an yeah. opportunity to invest in a couple of properties in Florida, um, and uh, I, I, I kind of that was what got me into the states. And then after that, I've, as you can tell, I've done I've done a bit in Florida, but done a bit in, in Chicago, Illinois, and also in uh, Ohio. So um, I might consolidate a little bit um, in the states. Uh, and I probably won't grow too much more in Portugal and Brazil either. So I'll concentrate more in in the UK predominantly and the USA to a second uh, second level. So maybe two two markets is probably the right number rather than four.
1: <laughs> so, which one is the most difficult of these countries or counties? Because you do you have a different in in the US?
2: Yeah, I guess the the the. They're easier and, and difficult for different reasons. For me personally, Brazil is the hardest one, without a doubt, because I don't speak the language. Wow. Well, I don't speak the language very well. So me personally. So whilst I have the the help and assistance of my my, my wife and my wife's uh, family, in fact, so my my wife's um, my brother-in-law, so my brother-in-law, not my wife's brother-in-law. Um, she <laughs> she he's an accountant, um, you know, for example, and and has access to legal services. So. That makes life easier, but I, you know, I don't speak fluent Portuguese, so language is a barrier. And then the other thing about Brazil, for example, my predominant strategy is, is basically buy something rubbish, do something good to it, and then extract the value to retain it, BRR, whatever, you know, whether it's a single family home or whether it's a development type of project. Now in, in Brazil, there isn't a secondary finance market in the same way that there is in, say, the UK or the US. So it's really difficult for me to actually do, you know, follow my primary um, investment strategy or investment model in Brazil. So I think Brazil is probably the hardest for me personally, uh, and mainly because of language issues. And also, it's not as mature from a legal point of view. So there are sometimes some title challenges on properties. then, then I think I'd say, obviously, UK being my home market is the easiest market for me. And um, there's a lot of good things about the UK, whereas the USA is more advanced in many ways. So you can do different things in the US um, that you can't necessarily do in the UK. Um, there's more owner financing, for example. They have what's called a loan note system. So that's really uh, private lenders who will lend money. Uh, on On properties you know in a in, and it 's more of a uh, there 's more of a marketplace for that there 's more it 's more accepted so it's you know it 's sort of easier in some respects to do more creative strategies in the u s than it is in the u k so uh, but you get other complexities that kick in like you know three levels of tax and you know different state laws <laughs> that you have to get your head around and then the tax code changes halfway through you deciding to go a certain direction, and, which can happen anywhere, by the way. So there's always change. Then we have to adapt to change. So I would say the UK is the easiest one for me because of the familiarity. Um, the, U, yeah. the USA is really interesting because of the, the opportunities that exist in the USA. Um, and then what makes it different uh, difficult is the differences. So, But once you get your head around yeah. the differences, then you can navigate, navigate okay. But I'd probably step out a little bit more uh, steadily than I did. <laughs> um, if I if I was have my time again, I'd do it more gradually. Is what I'm saying.
1: Okay, so which country do you think is the best place to invest then, in, of all of these countries that you mentioned? Obviously not Brazil, but I'm thinking maybe uh, U.S. or the U.K.
2: Yeah, um, it depends on how strong a constitution you've got um, because I think in the USA the highs are higher and the lows are lower. Um, So, you know, land value, if you extract the major cities like New York, San Francisco, LA, those sorts of cities, um, and if you go to some of the places I'm invested in, so Chicago is a good example, it's still a fairly large city, um, but you know, it's got a lot of growth potential. and, and 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 within the city, there's like the north side is the wealthy area, and the south side is not so not so wealthy. Um, so you get these different demographics and economic uh, factors. Uh, but land values, generally speaking, in those sorts of places are not not the same as they are, say, in the UK. So uh, they're lower. So you can literally have two houses next door to each other on a street in the USA, in say Chicago, with like let's say a hundred thousand difference in value. It, you know, you could. Buy, I I regularly bought properties for like twenty thousand um, dollars, which which have been revalued up at about one hundred and fifty or one hundred and eighty or something like that. You know, and literally the the property next door would be worth the one hundred and eighty. <laughs> um, whereas if you go in the UK, you won't find that. You just wouldn't find it because the land value no. m- reduces the differential. So um, I think that there is opportunity in the US, but like I say, you have to have a strong constitution because it can be quite a lot of risk as well. So with the, with a yeah. with a crash, it can go deeper than the UK. Um, with a rise, it can go higher. Uh, like I say, the land value um, is lower, but consequently, the conversion costs are higher uh, in, in the US than they are in the UK because labour rates tend to be more expensive. Let's say you know pe- yeah. people demand quite a high. You know they've got high standard of living, cost of living, and so they they demand quite a high. Uh, wage, so it costs more money to do the refurbishments or the conversions in the states, relatively speaking. So, and therefore, if you were, if you kind of don't get the budgeting right, it can, you know, swing the numbers quite significantly.
1: So, okay, so, uh, of those four countries, which country do do you think have the most cost of refurbishment? Is is that U.S.?
2: Uh, from my experience, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. So I'd say for the areas I invest in, so it isn't necessarily the whole of the US, I would say land values no. are lower generally and refurbishment, commercial costs are higher, let's say, than the UK and and yeah. indeed Portugal for that matter. Brazil's got the lowest labour uh, labour cost, but as I mentioned, it's difficult to extract the value unless you sell. So I could do flipping, I could flip in, in Brazil, but uh, <clears throat> for the reasons yeah. I mentioned, i uh, we probably most of we I would say to people who are looking at investing in Brazil either flip or if you're going to invest for the long term Have a good reason to have to be there for the long term, you know, so we have a yeah. good reason because of family connections <clears throat> So yeah, yeah, yeah. and we'll and we we'll always spend time in Brazil uh, For that reason so no,
1: because because I'm, I'm asking this because of a lot of uh, Swedish investors uh, they usually use to either want to invest in the US or in the UK market so that's why I'm asking yeah yeah so okay this. so uh,
2: I mean I, I personally prefer the UK because it's more stable I think yeah um, it's more predictable therefore the US can be can get better returns but can also lead to losses <laughs> pretty quickly if you care if you're not careful and also there's a lot of what I call trophy investments type of thing in, in the US. So, you know, the, the eight, nine bed villa near Disneyland, you know, sounds, sounds great, but as an investment, it's not necessarily a good idea. You know, um, I'm, one of, I'm, I'm always about return on investment, income returns on investment. And um, yeah. I mean, I know that pe- pe- people, and they'll tell you the numbers they want to tell you. I was talking to someone recently who, who bought an, uh, an Art Deco uh, building in Florida in Miami actually and he was telling me that it's, yeah. it's how much is, he's renting it for $500 a night and blah 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 And but I looked at his calendar and he, well, he didn't have that he didn't, it wasn't that booked out so he was telling me what he wanted me to hear um, if you yeah. follow me so there's this trophy asset stuff and in the major cities it's expensive and it's more of a capital growth play um, whereas in the sub, in, in these sort of midwestern places and like Chicago like Ohio you can get crazy return on investment, but you know you need to be careful what you're buying. So, yeah. for example, we were—I was bought—I was offered rather uh, at what they call a turnkey investment in Ohio, and you know I had it inspected, <clears throat> kind of like a survey. And uh, the, yeah. the the guy who was selling me the unit is like, what, "What do you want to expect it for? It's is turnkey. We've done all the work." You know, I'm like, "Well." Because I want an independent person to look at this, please. Yeah, so yeah, that's, okay exactly. with, that's okay with you. And uh, anyway, I had the inspector go around. And the inspector told me that the, it was going to fall over, basically. And the basement foundation was not secure. And, you know, it would be a significant amount of work to make it so. <clears throat> and there were other issues with the property. which um, So they'd kind of done a, you know, glossy sort of facelift. But behind the scenes, yeah. it wasn't that good an investment. And so we just walked away. And guess what? I didn't have any faith in that particular uh, turnkey provider after him is doing this to me. So that was supposed to be yeah, a fully fully turnkey, you're ready to go unit. And it would probably be an okay for a few years, but then the, the skeletons would have crawled out the, the woodwork later. So you've got to be watching. Sometimes I do say the U.S. is like the Wild West still. So you've got to be, care- yeah. got to be careful. So whilst I am investing in the U.S., um, it's my secondary market. Um, I've had to be careful. I've had a few close shaves over the years. Um, And so I prefer the UK, personally. So uh, I I invest in the US for diversification reasons and you get probably double the gross yield on a single family home in the US than you would on on the UK. But um, there's all this other stuff that goes with it.
1: Yeah, so how how did you manage to uh, find your power team in these different countries? I know you You got your power team in Brazil from your uh, wife's brother, your uh, brother-in-law, but uh, in Portugal and in the U.S. <coughs> UK. I know you, you're you from U.K.
2: Excuse me, because so, I took a drink, it went down the wrong way, so I got that. <coughs> so, so, yes, I think Don't worry. What they, in the States they call it boots on the ground. Um, so, um, but basically, and I say having your own eyes and ears... So you, you need to have your own. So a bit like with that turnkey guy, it's a good example. So I, found, I was introduced, I was referred to this turnkey provider in the US by someone in my network. And um, the, everyone's got a vested interest, right? So the, the guy who referred me would get paid if I did a deal with this turnkey provider. And the turnkey <laughs> provider clearly was getting profit if he sold me the deal so um and of course what i learned later is could i really trust the referral because he was getting paid so uh and the, the answer was no actually so uh so just be careful who you, know, you, you go through referrals you try and get referred to what you think are good quality reliable respectable people to deal with but look, always ask the question what's in it for them and literally ask them what's in it for you. Uh, and if they've got some sort of monetary gain, then you know, there's, it's difficult to trust. So the other phrase is trust but verify. So you can trust yeah. someone to give you a referral but verify. So there's, there's things in the US called, so for example, there's a rating system called Better Business Bureau. So you can look up, You know, it's a bit like Trustpilot and things like that for businesses. So you can look up um, businesses' reputation on Better Business Bureau. And that, you know, you just get people saying whatever they want to say uh, about that business. So um, that's, that's quite a good resource to sort of double check. So get maybe the referral route, so a, a property manager, they call them property managers, letting agents, they call property managers in the U.S. Um, so if you if you go, so you get, you get used to the different terminology, but this, the concepts are the same. So a property manager or a letting agent can refer you to contractors who will do, you know, refurbishments, for example. So that's quite a good place to go, but always trust but verify you know do the extra reference checks. Um, I had somebody once just to you know, uh, just to drift off uh, who was also introduced to me as someone who who could provide financing to me as a, an overseas investor and there are and uh, there are ways to get financing as overseas investors, but I was introduced this call uh, to this um, person uh, let's just call him dodgy Daryl um, <laughs> and um i i looked up there's a there's a, a resource over in the states so there's a lot more transparency in the states so you can look at value values you can look at in the uk too but there's valuations you can look up online uh, and there's also a service called white pages and white pages basically you can look up someone and see if they've got any criminal records see what uh, see if they've got any outstanding ju- judgments and and things like that so dodgy daryl looked a bit dodgy basically so uh, when I when I looked him up <laughs> on White Pages and he was just I just felt it was a very elaborate phishing scheme But he you know he was going to lend me hundreds of thousands, but in order to lend me this money I had to pay him like thirty thousand or something. I was like, what? Well, why am I giving you? What? Why am I giving you money so you can give me money? I was like, no, 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 no. I'm never going to yeah. I'm never going to see that again, am I? And um, but he you know he produced some really uh, like he you know, produced some professional indemnity insurance and. Some references and stuff, and I just, you know, when you just get that feeling in your stomach, I was like, no, 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 it's not, it's not right, not right. So I just gave that one, no. a, gave that one a bit of a swerve. So, um, so there's some resources you can get out there when you're looking at the states. And the UK, is not quite as advanced in that respect, but you can, you know, can do the checks around the social networks and the forums and the um, the, the sort of online referencing. But so building this team. Yeah. So what I would say is. Try and go on a referral, but be careful about the referral. Trust but verify, yeah. so validate them. And um, I think the other thing to say is this really, We're, and, and it's, it applies anywhere. So forget US or UK, Brazil, Portugal, whatever. It applies anywhere. You're gonna end up kissing a few frogs, so to speak. Um, I work on a general rule. That if I go into a, a new area, and that could be a new city in the UK or a new country. If I'm going into a new area, I'm pretty well expecting that I will of of you know of of one in three people <clears throat> I would work with again uh, on the next project. So in other words, two out of three I probably wouldn't. And then of course, so if you retain that one, then you've got a similar you know sequence. So it probably takes you two or three projects before you really build your trustworthy power team, as you call it. So I, I yeah. think it takes some time. Um, and you know, you might get lucky, you might you know, just be able to you know, plug into an existing network or team or something. Um, and maybe par- partnering with somebody who's already there is a good way of doing that potentially. But I think uh, if you go in on your own and try to build your power team from scratch, just, just be a bit careful, I'd say.
1: Yeah, so that leads me into the, to the following question. How do you manage all of your projects <clears throat> from abroad? Living the dream.
2: <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, I said I was 54. I'm actually only 24, you know, but this, yeah, I, feel a, a bit, I, feel, I feel like I've aged quite a bit in the last few years. Um, so we've got two types of management. We've got projects and, and properties. So obviously, so just to differentiate. So in the project phase, that's when you're doing something to the property, uh, a refurbishment, conversion yeah. or building it. Uh, and then on the management phase, that's really once it's tenanted and um, you're renting it out. So, uh, long story short, I, I rely on other people. Um, that's it. So I have good people around me who uh, I try to get good people around me who look after those various elements. So I have a project manager. Um, um, now, it doesn't always follow that I have a project manager in every country I work in. So sometimes you can you can ask a property a letting agent. Or their equivalent to be a project manager. So if it's a small refurbishment, you know um, they could go and check on it. They could you know look on the quality of work of a, of a tradesperson and sort of play that role. Um, then you could have a main contractor who also doubles up as the project manager. Um, you could follow that route with the projects too, or you could have your own independent project manager or even site manager, depending on how big the job is. So on on the project side and on the property side. Um, in, if it's a foreign market to me, I, have, um, I use letting agents or property managers pretty much uh, exclusively in, in overseas countries. Um, but here's the caveat, have your own eyes and ears. So even if you're appointing a property manager or, a, uh, let's say, a, a letting agent or equivalent to look at things, get somebody independent to check in on things um, uh, occasionally. Um, So it doesn't matter, you know, all the will in the world that, you know, those people you think they're going to be okay to work with, but just get your own independent eyes and ears. And in the States, you can have, like, what they call property inspectors who will go in and and do that sort of role. You can employ people who just go and, um, you know, check in on things for you, um, do your own sort of mini inspections in between things. So, yeah, just it's the trust but verify thing again, to be honest.
1: Yeah. Okay. So, do you extract money from different companies?
2: So, at the moment, I'm on a no it, <laughs> is the answer. I, I reinvest everything pretty much. Um, so, I'm on a, a quest at the moment to um, grow my portfolio, uh, grow my asset base. I've got a big vision, which is to develop a foundation, actually, uh, which will outlive wow. me. Yeah, which will outlive me. So, everything kind of gets thrown back into the pot. So I I do have um, uh, alternative income streams. So uh, I have like um, c- c- mentoring consultancy sort of revenue stream. Um, I'm fortunate. My wife is still working, um, so that provides a bit of income, you know, stability in that sense. So we don't need to dip into uh, the the money from the property side. So I kind of say that. You know, I'm also doing this to some extent, but my wife's predominantly income for today and I'm predominantly wealth for tomorrow. So that's kind of how we do things. Yeah. But my wife's on her last assignment now. I don't think she's gonna work beyond this role. She's probably got another two or three years. And then uh, we'll go into our semi-retirement mode. Um, and our semi-retirement mode is living between three, three countries. Um, so that, that's how we'll operate. And, and then we'll probably start to draw down income from the portfolio at that point in time so we're kind of building things up um, reinvesting everything growing the snowball and then um, i do have alternative income streams as i mentioned uh, as does you know uh, well the family has alternative income streams and then you know we'll start cashing our chips in a little bit maybe in two or three years time that's that's our plan
1: yeah yeah i was thinking about asking you what strategy do you prefer each country but You mentioned before that you want to retain everything. So I'm going to leave that one out, or should I still ask it?
2: (laughs) So I don't do, at the moment, I don't do like the conversion development project, larger development projects anywhere but the UK. Um, So I guess I prefer to to do larger conversions and developments in the UK. I think in the other countries, it's a mixture of, um, um, you know, smaller units just say that and some of its service service departments or service accommodation so um that yeah. that can be um that can be a difference i think in the us though um I'm, I'm looking at what they call duplex and triplex units i don't know if you know what they are but essentially yeah i know okay so but
1: maybe not the listeners so maybe you can explain it for them
2: yeah sure uh, so essentially you've got a single family home you know where obviously as its name implies you just have one family that lives in the property um, but some some um, some units are built that they could be split into, say, two flats or three flats. So you, you'd like you'd, you know you'd be like a title split, perhaps in the UK, uh, or a, sort of a not really a mini HMO because each unit is a separate unit. Um, so yeah. a duplex would be two two units in one, and a triplex would be three units in one, and and they're pretty good from a, a yield and therefore return on investment point of view. So I like that in the, yeah. I like those in the states um, and then you know Brazil in Rio it lends you know normally we're not in normality but normally in Rio it's got a fairly consistent all-year uh, tourism industry so that lends itself quite well to service accommodation yeah. holiday lets and uh, the, the same with that uh, we only actually have, now have one property in the in Portugal and that's in the Algarve so that's also holiday let. So you kind of mix the strategies a little bit, depending on those locations. So predominantly conversions and developments in the UK, predominantly long-term buy-and-hold duplex and triplex in the US, and more like serviced accommodation or holiday lets in Brazil and Portugal.
1: Okay. So do you have a parent company for the whole portfolio?
2: Currently, no. Um, but it's interesting because I'm, I'm really in the process of, uh, of looking at that um, right now. So uh, I'm in talks, so you know, we've got to be careful how we structure it. So we've got different ele- elements to our business. So we've got, um, you know, overseas entities. We've got um, different uh, types of property company. So we've got property investment companies, development companies, uh, trading companies and um, rental companies, effectively. Uh, well, property investment is the first one, the rental, the same thing. Um, but you know, service accommodation is different to um, normal buy to let type of rental. So there's quite a lot of complexity. Um, and really, uh, in all honesty, within that, I've been putting it off. Um, I just need to kind of suck it up and, and go and deal with that. Uh, and I'll probably end up putting a holding company in place. Uh, but I just need to um, think about it. But for my developments, I tend to use SPVs um, and, that, yeah. and that's me. And, and I, at the moment, I'm tending to own those SPVs. And sometimes I own them jointly with a, uh, an investment partner, for example. So that doesn't lend itself to sitting within a group structure for me um, if I'm investing yeah. in an SPV with a third party, for example. So uh, I'll probably still have SPVs um, around, around the edges as well.
1: Okay, so what, what would be the benefits if you would uh, do it like you are mentioned, uh, doing it as a holding company?
2: Well, I think you know the, you can move properties around more easily, for example, between entities. Uh, if it's a holding company, um, you can sort of uh, there are tax benefits um, that you can potentially play. Uh, you can offset, obviously, on a group structure basis. Uh, it, it can you know simplify your operations. Um, that that you, yeah. you operate so there's there's a number of benefits um but I think really it's the main benefit is consolidating everything into a single point of ownership um and that allows yeah. you to... do,
1: do you know do you know how lending would be uh, in the different countries than if you were having a, or you haven't checked that yet
2: uh i haven't checked it in, apart from the u k so in the u k yeah. um you know typically the I mean lenders will they'll go it's like onions peeling an onion with a lender, so <laughs> it's like well the what is the entity that is, that needs yeah. that needs the money, and how solid yeah. is that entity? How solid is the business case the the investment proposition? And if they're happy with that, so there's enough equity, there's a strong asset base, there's a track record. For example, of that entity, then maybe they'll just lend to the entity, and take security over the asset in question, and that's that. Um, however. Yeah. Um, if they see a strong intergroup connection uh, and funds are really not in the entity but they're in the group or, or an intermediary in the group, they'll maybe try and take an intercompany loan or a parent company, sorry, a guarantee, I didn't mean loan, they'll yeah. maybe take uh, an intercompany guarantee or a parental company guarantee or they'll try and take security across assets uh, across the group. So um, that's actually partly one of the reasons why I've resisted going for the group structure. In, in all honesty, because I yeah. probably end up giving, you know, cross-company guarantees, parent company guarantees, for example, and yeah. um, it's not so much that I'm averse to giving them. It's just that you could get this complicated structure that you might have given, let's say, a, you know, a debenture to uh, a bank, which then precludes you using that same security for another entity. So I, I would be cautious about piling into the whole group structure. And that's part of the reason why I resisted, because the banks could, uh, they could look, they'll look for this security. And guess what? I I actually um, saw a bank, I went on a presentation day with a bank once. It was a development finance uh, lender. And they said, hey, listen, we'll ask for stuff. We don't always expect to get it. You know, so they that tells you. You know, well, well, we'll ask for a director's guarantee. We'll ask for a shareholder guarantee. We'll ask for a cross-company guarantee. We'll ask for a parental guarantee. We'll ask for debentures. We'll ask for whatever. You know, blah blah blah. But uh, it, yeah. sometimes you can just push back, um, especially if you know, like I say, the deal and the entity stacks up. So why do they need all this other security? Um, yeah, it, that's true. So uh, it, it doesn't mean you'll always succeed in pushing back. Um, it just means that sometimes they will ask for this much, but they're not necessarily expecting to get everything. Maybe they'll get a little bit less. So I think um, yeah. lending is an interesting point. I can't really speak for um, too much about the uh, other countries. I think the US, I'm just doing some refinancing as I've had to give a personal guarantee. Um, yeah. But I didn't have to give a, there is actually a parent arrangement pair. So I've got a U- US company, which is owned by a UK company which I in turn own, and so the lender okay. the lender has asked for my personal guarantee, but they didn't ask for the the per- parent company guarantee. And um, and to be fair, they, well, I think they've only asked for the personal guarantee because I'm an overseas investor, because it's you know yeah. if they needed to come after me, you know, or generally it's more difficult. You know, where do where do they find yeah. find me? So they've asked for my personal guarantee because it's probably easier to find me than it is the company. So. I just think yeah. I think that's the reason why they've asked for that.
1: So, so do you think uh, which country is the hardest to uh, get lending? Do you have lending on on the other properties in Portugal and in Brazil, or is yeah, it just
2: yeah, uh, actually not in Brazil. Uh, we don't have any lending in Brazil, and that's because it's yeah. like, it's probably the hardest country to get lending in uh, for me personally. <laughs> now, for my wife, it's easier. Yeah. She's a national, um, so it's actually easier for her. Um, and so actually, the more general answer to your question is if you are uh, not, not a national and not resident of the con- country that you're investing in, then it's challenging. It's just challenging. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, then the secondary point is um, if you look at, say, the UK and the US, which are the easiest markets I'm operating in from a lending point of view, they will look at the the asset, return from the asset. The income from the asset, uh, if that follows. So, like buy-to-let mortgages in the UK, they'll go okay as long as there's enough coverage between the rent and the mortgage. The you know the 125% rule, 140% rule. I can explain explain what that means if you need it. to, yeah. But I mean, basically, that the rent covers the mortgage by at least 125 or 140%, uh, depending on your tax yeah. tax status. Uh, that's what that means. Yeah. So you can you can get you know a loan on a buy to let if you meet that criteria. Whereas in say Portugal, it's done on income affordability, uh, which basically means how much you know it's like a residential mortgage application. Like, can you afford to service this debt on this asset? So it it it, it makes it difficult to scale in in say Portugal, and and the US. I've found it's a little bit similar to the UK. Um, you know, they they look at it both so, ways. They can look at affordability, or they can look at you know the income returns on the asset.
1: Yeah, so it's the same in Sweden here. Uh, they look at the the income that you're generating from your job, mm-hmm. the personal income, and not the yeah. the income you get from your rental.
2: That, that seems to be quite so, quite common ac- so across Eurozone generally. You know, yeah. Germany is the same, yeah. France is the same, Portugal is the same, Spain's the same. Yeah, I obviously you're telling me about Sweden, um, which I didn't know. Yeah. Well, now you know. <laughs> I do, I do. And uh, you know, and and so one of the issues, um, you know, because for example, with me, I'm I'm building this snowball, and I don't have an income, you know, deliberately because I'm leaving it all invested. So yeah. if I have to go to a bank and go, well, I you know, I I could I could show an income, quite a significant income. But I choose not to because I'm reinvesting everything in the business. So I don't have a a large income. So that's, you know, so actually what we do in our case is, um, you know, because my wife has the provable income, she gets the lending in the countries where you go on affordability. And and I get them where, you know, that's another reason why I'm investing in the UK and the USA because it is not so irrelevant um, that my income. Yeah.
1: So how do you stay tax efficient?
2: This might surprise you my answer <laughs> i don 't sweat too much about tax um, is the, is the honest answer now don 't get me wrong i, I don 't like just ignore it completely it 's just that I work on a general principle that if i 'm making money and, and need to pay tax i 'm doing okay um, yeah. so but yes, there are things you can do to make yourself more tax efficient um, so just to give you one small example. Uh, well, in the if I talk because obviously it differs between countries, the, the tax rules. So, but if I just focus on the UK for a second, so two, two big uh, tax breaks that you could get um, one is if, if a property used to be your own home. So, um, now yeah. it, you can only have one own home at one time, so this is kind of limited. But if you can imagine you had your own home. And it used to be even more attractive. they changed the rules. Uh, it used to be that they had something called letting's relief, but that's gone now, so forget that. but if you had your own home um, you know if you buy your own home and you make money on your home, excuse me, and you sell that home then um, it's then a capital gain is tax free. but the period of ownership is still tax free if you convert it into a rental property uh, and you still get a residual period of time and and you know you get a capital gains tax allowance so Actually, owning your own home, converting it to rental for maybe two to five years, and then selling it is quite a tax-efficient way to extract a gain from that property, Uh, and then of course, in my case, I'd be reinvesting that money, I'm not spending it. And that's one, you you can't do that a lot because it's your own home. And another one is on buy-to-lets. If you um, obviously keep a buy-to-let, if you sell a buy-to-let property, it's not subject to income tax, it's subject to capital gains tax on any gain. So I'm always looking at the values of property in my portfolio over time and I'm also looking yeah. at the relative return on investment that I'm getting, return on income, return on equity. I'm always looking at them and I often select a property to dispose of, if I own it personally this is, um, that's what I'm talking yeah. about here, in in any one year. So last couple of years i've kind of sold one property a year that I owned in my personal name and um i've had i've not paid any capital gains tax often or or a low amount of capital gains tax and i reinvest those profits in in my portfolio so you know so i can whereas if i left it um there will be a point in time where if i were either to sell it or it become part of my estate you know it'd be subject to quite a high level of taxation at that point so I'm looking to recycle. There are costs associated with selling a property, uh, transaction costs, yeah. for example, <clears throat> you know, estate agent fees, et cetera. So, um, you know, you need to kind of do some. So I, I kind of do that kind of exercise, but I don't do anything fancy like, you know, trusts or, or, or that that kind of thing particularly.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah. Uh, one, yeah. one quick mention about uh, taxation, which is might not work for overseas investors, but it might work for a lot of people I engage with, is the use of... Um, a SAS pension—that's also quite tax-efficient—and yeah. and so if you if you have a, a SAS pension, a link to your uh, property business, you can you know get some tax breaks. Let's just say that you can get some tax breaks there, and also you could be your own bank uh, to some extent yeah. through the pension. Lots we could talk about, but so, I'm not, I don't sweat it too much with taxation.
1: No, 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 no. It, it, I, I I totally agree with you with that. If you pay a lot of taxes, that means that you're doing quite well. So I agree with you. So how do you transfer the money? Uh, is it Ford's, Forex trading or is it Internet Bank? Or is it uh, yeah. TransferWise, Revolut, etc.?
2: Yeah, so uh, I, I mean, I, I use TransferWise and Revolut um, quite a bit, especially with the U.S. Um, TransferWise, they've got a borderless account um, system now. So you can set up a US dollar account, a euro account, for example, um, we, we, and, and a GB, uh, G gross pounds account, pound sterling account, uh, borderlessly with TransferWise. So that's my go to um, source. The, the thing is this, though, um, <clears throat> there are different banking systems, uh, which I discovered. So with the US, for example, they have like um, at least two different banking systems and TransferWise only use one of them. So you you cannot so for example there's the concept of an e-check electronic check in the states TransferWise don't su- uh, support that. So you can't pay or receive e-checks with TransferWise. You can't, you know, um, you can't send a wire transfer with TransferWise. But you can send what they call ACH. So you can't you know first time you get into these things you Probably make a mistake and you realise, oh, I can't do that. Um, but then you've got international wire transfers, which are typically quite expensive. But if you've got a major, if you've got a small purchase, it's probably not worth sweating too much about um, exchange rates. Transfer Wise and Revolut probably take care of most things for you. But if you've got like a, a large payment, like a refurb cost or a purchase or or a mortgage transfer, uh, transfer or settlement figure or something like that, it's probably worth going to. Uh, some sort of currency broker and and getting a price on that because going to the mainstream banks you'll pay an awful lot in fees and and lose a lot on the conversion as well
1: yeah so which country did you suffer most or was most painful during this pandemic or yeah we're still in it
2: (laughs) it's kind of weird because I (laughs) I suffered in all of them in a way Fun enough, Brazil not so much because of the way our, our investments are structured there. But um, the US I had more more um, areas um, on the on the by on the sort of rentals in the UK um, because I've got more development activity going on. I, had, I suffered more with the development projects, uh, which I, I just couldn't get on site, for example. Um, yeah. So I suffered in a different way, and then I think um, in, in Portugal, which is a holiday, it just. Closed, <laughs> closed for business, you know, effectively, um, and the same with. Funny enough, the well, the holiday, the short, the service departments in the UK, they kind of they emptied for you know for about two or two or three months, and then they've picked up again. Uh, Portugal, I kind of missed the season, um, so that's a bit bit rubbish. So I kind of suffered in different ways in different countries, but thanks for reminding me. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Sorry about that. That's okay. (laughs) So what tips can you give someone who would like to do the same as you?
2: What with the international investing and developing and things like that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, just by the way, just to go back to that point, um, uh, one tip there is to expect challenges and changes and to make provision for that and also to deal with things quickly. So I would say that as far as what happened with the pandemic and the lockdown, um, there 's always going to be something uh, that will come around um, you know every ten years on average, which is big global financial crisis you know now the the pandemic and dot com bubbles and recession and stuff like that it 's just always going to happen so expect that and then make certain provisions and I talk about making your property bulletproof um, i've probably got a resource on that if people want that um, but in terms of um, getting yourself set up and to be more of a an international developer or or investor. Well, there's a difference, by the way, between an international investor and developer. So maybe start as an investor. Um, And I'd probably um, either tie up with someone who's on the ground locally to where you want to uh, invest uh, and leverage their network and their contacts and their know-how as much as you possibly can. But I'd also adopt this sort of trust but verify approach. So... Um, it's great to then have that person, but just you know, have your own eyes and ears. That could be literally your own eyes and ears. Go, meet them, see what they do, sort of thing. Uh, or it could be if, you, if that's not easy or convenient for you to do, that maybe you could send someone, you know, periodically to check on things. You know, particularly if it's like a development yeah. project. So I'd do that. I'd probably I'd probably scale more gradually than I did um, insofar as overseas expansion. Um, And I'd definitely get, you know, good advice around you. So have the right sort of accounting, tax, legal uh, advice around you. And don't forget the cross-border issue. So there are international tax treaties, for example, uh, that you kind of need to be aware of. Is the one, isn't the one? Could it, you know, could you be taxed twice? Um, Or, you know, so uh, you could be taxed twice. uh, Sorry, you could be taxed once, but you'll end up paying the highest tax rate (laughs) if there's a treaty. And if there isn't a treaty, you could be taxed twice. So have have good advice, uh professional advice around you. Have your own eyes and ears. Uh go, you know, go steadily as you go, suck it and see sort of thing, Let's see how it goes with a small, yeah. small project and then maybe move to a different one. But I'd I'd hook up a network with people on the ground um as well, rather than just try and wing it from you know from your laptop, um, you know, from yeah. afar. That's they're the main they're the main tips.
1: Yeah. Good. Good tips. I hope the listeners have taken notes about that.
2: Well, wow.
1: so now we've come to the fun part. <laughs> okay, I want to know your best movie, your best TV series, and uh, best books.
2: So, now spoiler, you did you did uh, tell me you are going to ask me these questions. So, so uh, by the way, thank you that you did because then I, I thought about it. And so, um, I guess with, with films, I've got a lot of different... We were just chatting about this the other day, funnily enough, in the house, and um, I tend to like you know, this sort of uh, suspense-thriller type of um, film. But I try to think about what I might like um, you know, generally... You know, just two, two answers to your question, basically. So The Matrix. Yeah. I, t- I talked about The Matrix, didn't I? And the reason I like The Matrix yeah. so much is it is this sort of parallel universe. It's like trying to escape the rat race, trying to escape corporate land. I apply that analogy to where I was. And, uh, and what I did, yeah. so I, I'm Neo, you know, um, that escaped, escaped <laughs> them. So it's just, I lo- I, it's dated now, but I, I really love the, the concept of it. And uh, on, a, on a sort of more business-related film, I like The Big Short. Um, I don't know if yeah. you've seen that one.
1: Me too. Yeah. Yeah, I love
2: it. So, you know, people could see, right. people could see you know, the crisis coming, but no one would believe them. And I like, I like things which are contrarian. Um, you know, generally speaking yeah. so that's, part, that's the reason why I like uh, that one so TV right um, I think uh, I had to look at my notes I I really like <laughs> there's an American guy called Marcus Limonis uh, I don't know if you've heard of him um, and he no. so he's a, he's a, a, an investor a in, uh, business investor an owner and he goes in and, and kind of buys small businesses and turns them around and um, he's got a TV program called The Profit uh, with a, with an F, he's not like a prophet, you know, prophesying what's going to happen. And it, and I really love that program because um, you know, well, I love turnarounds, by the way. So I'm a, i am love love the whole idea of a turnaround. And he just goes in, he does deal on a handshake, uh, you know, lot on trust. And uh, he's got some really good ideas of how to simplify and expand the business. And he he's got this phrase called trust the process, or as he calls it, trust the process. And um, I, I, I love that concept. So that's a that's a good one. Um, not sure what channel yeah. you can get it on. Um, we have a number of different cable networks. So it's on...
1: Maybe on YouTube I can find it Maybe. otherwise.
2: And then I, I love any property reality TV. I mean, I don't know about you, Nana, no, but <laughs> if we travel... And this is, this is... I'm going to tell you this now. If we travel, it's actually my wife who will go on the TV and look for something like Sarah Beanie or something like that, you know. Um, the, there's the yeah. there's the Property Brothers which is a US one and there's these different property reality yeah. we watched one the other day funny enough we're watching Sarah Beanie at the moment with How to Live Mortgage Free so we always make a beeline it's very unromantic I know but you know we, <laughs> we like we like the sort of property reality TV so you know for a little bit of chill we don't take it too seriously and in terms of books I'm a really I'm a massive book reader as you, I think you know um, yeah I know so it's really difficult for me to pick one or even two, um, but I think I'll get three. You want me, you want three out of me? <laughs> Let's see if I have any out on my list. Um, okay, so okay, T- two two similar ones. For um, so picking up my my line about contrarian thinking. So there's a book called What I Learned Losing a Million Dollars, and mm. you know because people write about success, but not many people yes. write about what you can learn from failure. And yeah. that's the reason why I like that book. Because if you ask anyone about, well, what's your secret to success? They'll say this or say that. And then you ask the next person, they'll say the other and the other. And you go, well, which one is it? You know um, Because actually there's a, yeah. there's a lot of different things that contribute to success. But this book talks about there's only three main things that contribute to failure, especially as an investor. Yeah. So um, that's a really good book I recommend to people. Because you can learn a lot from failure. I'm going to read that book. Cool.
1: And then uh, I'm, write, for sim- I'm writing it down now.
2: <laughs> and do you remember what i said about everything goes in cycles and there will always be something big that happens uh, and then everyone's yeah. always taken by surprise well guess what it always happens there isn't really a surprise the only surprise is what is the thing the the and so the book the black swan have you come across that one
1: it uh no, no. i've is is it the same as uh, this Never Split the Difference? Is it the same no, author or no.
2: no? Different author to Never Split the Difference. That's a good book, by the way. Um, the, the, uh, it's um, Taleb. I forgot because his first he called. Name. Because he
1: called he calls his group the Black Swan. That's why I did uh, that uh, yes. uh, parallel.
2: I understand. Yeah, Chris Voss wrote um, Never Split the Difference. Yeah, um, exactly. And yeah. he has got a consultancy called the Black Swan. But the, and he's taken the concept of the Black Swan which is basically a rare occurring event that nobody could see coming but actually they happen more frequently than you imagine so um i love that one yeah uh, for that reason and then you know i guess if i'm if i'm going to be pressed into a third one um everybody talks about rich dad poor dad right so yeah. i'm not because everybody else does <laughs> um but, 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 I love it. but yeah, yeah yeah rich dad poor dad obviously you know everyone should read that one um, ironically, yeah. I suppose I love um, uh, Unscripted. There we go. So have you heard of, have you read uh, Millionaire Fastlane? By MJ, no. MJ DeMarco.
1: I, I have it on my uh,
2: list. I have so many
1: on my list. So uh,
2: uh, his, yeah. he became famous, MJ DeMarco, for writing millionaire, The Millionaire Fastlane, which is a good book, by the way. Yeah. But I really like the second one, which is called Unscripted. And guess what? Unscripted is a bit like matrix mm. so kind of ties in tie, <laughs> it's, it's the idea of escaping the this sort of you know treadmill rat race world um, and, and maybe if you're doing yeah. it through business actually he talks about business but he also talks about investing he talks about real estate um, as well so um, I quite like it. it's the, the, it's quite a long book and you probably need to have read millionaire fast lane before you read unscripted uh, and having said okay. that you can probably skip the first third of unscripted if you've read millionaire fast lane so there you go there's there's three i could probably i i one bonus one um particularly if you've not got a good grounding in personal finance which i didn't when i started uh but i love um yeah. the richest man of babylon yeah
1: yeah that's a good book it's
2: easy to read a it's book. a parable
1: and very short as well exactly
2: so you get you, you notch up another book on your uh on your target <laughs> quite, <laughs> quite quickly um, mm-hmm. That's how I'm, re- okay, yeah, <laughs> That's how that I'm reading for or four months. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, but there you have it, listeners. Richard Brown. And if people would like to reach out to you, how can they reach out to you? I know you have a podcast. That's how mm-hmm. I found you from the beginning. Sure. Uh, but yeah, how can you reach
2: out? So but let's keep it all together and so email me podcast at thepropertyvoice.net which obviously has got the website address in that as well so go to thepropertyvoice.net we've got a page which tells you about the podcast it's also on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, blah 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 it's all on so the property voice is how I'm probably uh, most known I suppose Um, I've written a couple of books so you can find some of those books on Amazon um and then i write for ypn magazine so if you write if, if so if some of this is kind of said oh that's interesting so i talked about in your portfolio uh, i've written the odd article in investing in the usa for example um there's other bits and pieces of resources um uh, that you can get all my back catalog for ypn magazine um if you just subscribe so just send an email podcast at the and um you know I'll, I'll try my best to to help you out and direct you or probably get my assistant to help probably more likely that's that's the best yeah. i think they're the best ways of getting hold of me
1: okay there you have it listeners thank you for listening to this great guy and for me asking all of the questions
2: <laughs> I was really, thanks for getting me on the show i really appreciate it it's um uh, i hope your audience in sweden gets some benefit out of it but um <clears throat> you know well i was uh I was going to digress, let me not digress because I'll just digress forever, but I remember a really good uh, occasion I had in Stockholm, um, a, a summer party in Stockholm, but let's not go there. Uh, so I've got, I've got a good memory of, of Sweden for sure uh, as a result of that. So hello to all the people in Sweden. Um, you know, we, we, we tend to get on well, the Brits and the Swedes, so, um, and I'm sure yeah. other nationalities are also included and welcome. <laughs> <laughs>
1: There you have it, people. Don't be stressed. Invest. Bye.
0: There we go. I hope everyone else found that as interesting as I did. I really love the idea of investing in multiple countries. But as Richard said, I can imagine there is a large learning curve. But nevertheless, it was a great insight into what It's like to have a portfolio that spreads multiple countries and hearing about both the business and management hurdles, but how Richard has found solutions to those as well. Now, I know it's been a few weeks since Richard has been back on the podcast, directly that is, but I've been assured, well, actually, he said hopefully, but a bit of accountability, that the podcast will begin again next week. So that is definitely something to look forward to. That having been said, I hope you enjoyed the interview. It's been a pleasure to be back. The link to the Pengaflurda podcast is in the show notes. They have more English guests, so it's quite mixed and some really interesting interviews, so worth checking out as well. As always, the show notes will be at thepropertyvoice.net. You can always contact Richard directly via email at richard@thepropertyvoice.net at or myself by emailing martin at thepropertyvoice.net. Have a great day, afternoon, evening, whatever time it is where you are right now. And we look forward to seeing you here again next week. Goodbye.